As you're listening to me, Daisy, Apple's iPhone disassembly robot, is dismantling an iPhone into lots of recyclable parts. That's how Apple recovers more materials than conventional recycling methods. Thanks, Daisy. There's more to iPhone. Hello everyone, this is The Rut from The Times and The Sunday Times. Thanks for joining us and welcome back. And we're in a different location today, guys. We're in London's West End. We can see Chinatown out the window. We've got some big news because we, you might have heard that this is starting slightly differently because you've all heard a lot about the great producer Alfie. Well, because it's going to be quite busy and because we're going to be all over the place at the World Cup, we've basically anointed the great producer Alfie to becoming the great presenter Alfie. So you've all heard about him, but you might not have heard of him unless you've listened to the adverts on the ruck, which uh, we're very grateful for. Are you putting canned applause in here, Alfie? This is what you need. I know, the takeover is happening. Viva la revolution. So, oh, French, well done. (laughs) Without further ado, let's introduce our presenter, Mr. Alfie Reynolds. How are we, gents? Are we all good? We're good. Do you need any tips, Alfie? I know you've only done commentary on TalkSport. You've hosted lots of stuff on the radio. But if you need any presenting tips, then, then just, just, just call us up whenever you need. I will be leaning heavily on all of you. But I'm looking forward <laughs> to it here, gents. We're here, as you mentioned, Will, on location. We're at Clubhouse 5, which is just off Leicester Square. So if I kind of lean to my right and over Alex's shoulder, I can kind of see someone dressed up as a Pikachu, all the general delights that are in Leicester Square. But Clubhouse 5 have invited us down to host our pre-World Cup pod, as you say, ahead of the World Cup. Will, you guys are going to be so busy out in France, so hectic, that I'll be having a little bit more of an on-air role for the podcast. And that's why we thought we'd kick things off here. And, of course, you've heard from Will, you've heard from Alex. We welcome back Owen Slot as well. How are you, Slotty? Well, just so excited to be in rocking Clubhouse 5, which is... I mean, we the the fans are all here um, screaming to to listen to our. our we couldn't keep bon them out Mo. the door, could we? Bon Mo, that's my French. <laughs> <laughs> you picked up from Viva la Revolution, and we go. No, from quite there. right. Let's just no cul-de-sacs. Well, listen. Looking ahead to the World Cup, there's so much to get into, gents. Before we properly get into things, we're going to look at pools A, pool B, C, D. We're going to look for all of it. Maybe some of our hopes for the <clears> tournament. <throat> And uh, maybe a few predictions as well. You've all covered Rugby World Cups before. So before we fully get into the meat of it, just where, how are you feeling, generally speaking, ahead of this version in 2023? I think this will be the best World Cup there's been. I think the competition at the, highest, at the, at the top of it is tighter than ever. You've got Ireland as the, world, as the world number one team going into it. But, and they've beaten everyone else. And they've beaten all their big rivals in the last two years. But France are hosts. New Zealand with Joe Schmidt on the on the management team, I think could be that could be a, like an inspired piece of recruitment from them. And we saw South Africa at Twickenham last Friday night, just monstering the All Blacks. That side of the draw looks incredible, and the imbalance in the draw is is ludicrous in a lot of ways. It was done three years ago because they needed to get ticketing in ahead of the Paris Olympics. It won't happen again like this, and it's created uh, a left hand side of the draw with the top five teams in the world. And the right-hand side of the draw with teams 6, 7, 8, 9, 10. Which, if you're Scottish or Irish, you're looking at this going, my God, we've got to get two of the top five will make the semi-finals. But if you're looking at it from a neutral perspective, it makes the group stages better than they've ever been. Because every group has got 
jeopardy in it. Even if, you know, I, I think Italy will struggle to to come through Pool A, but we open with France against New Zealand at the, at the start of France. I just think that there is even there's even a positive to be taken from the imbalanced draw that the two sides are are pretty level, and so the group stages for once will be like will be fiery from the off. There'll be no slow burn here. It'll be, it'll be awesome. I'm really looking forward to it, and, and I've actually to everyone else's <laughs> chagrin, more French. Um, That's I, brilliant. Do it again. <laughs> we don't have to keep no. doing French, by the way, gents. Just They're so you know, through bored. the episode, yeah. yeah. No, but I, I spent a, a week in France, and that was you just a holiday. the presenter asserting himself there. It's like <laughs> That's how you do grow it. up, kids. <laughs> Well, I spent a week in France, and, and uh, before this, just had a break for from covering England, which some of us needed. And it's just going to be an awesome tournament. France is going to embrace it amazingly. They've got a really good team, as Alex was saying. I think we'll get onto it, but I think they probably should win it. Slightly reticent to be the man who's going to probably stay with England for most of the tournament because at the moment they look quite looks quite sad watching them really. But I've only ever been to one World Cup as a journalist. I've watched plenty on the telly and all that. And that was Japan last time, and that was a mad tournament for lots of different reasons. Lots of us had never been to Japan. It was a different experience working out where the hell you were or <laughs> what train line to get or what. If you're the England man, or... how long have they put you in for? Yeah, well, yeah. It's a very good question. There's, I mean, so have, my... have you got a hotel for the quarterfinals? I, or not? Yeah, well, I, nominally I'm meant to be there for the whole thing, but there's a point I was with my girlfriend on holiday and she's coming out for a small bit in the middle while I'm having a break when England have got 11 days off. And she was like, should we just, should, are you going to come back with me on the Eurostar? Because England will be gone by then. So we'll see. But in general, I think it's going to be an amazing tournament. Let's see how much England take part in it. But it should be really, really fun. Well, I'm really looking forward to it. It's my first tournament in a media capacity. I was going to call myself a journalist there, but I thought in front of you three, it might kind of get scoffed at a little bit. But I'm really looking forward to going. I woke up to some trepidation last week, Alex, when I looked at the Times and saw your article about French air traffic control going on strike on the 15th of September which is when I'm supposed to be flying into Nice for the Wales-Portugal game, the England-Japan game. So I think travel chaos could potentially plague us throughout the World Cup, but we'll wait on see. But as we say, coming up on this episode, we'll preview all the pools at the World Cup during that time. Hopefully we'll be able to tackle some of the big questions like can Ireland make it past the quarterfinals? Maybe they could even go on and win it. Will it be a glorious maiden title on home soil for the French? Or possibly will it be the traditional powerhouses of Springboks and the All Blacks that assert their dominance. Plus, what on earth will England produce? We'll hear more from Will on that as he's going to be stuck with them. And also, we'll look ahead to the tournament predictions, hopes of the tournament, all that sort of thing coming up on this week's episode of The Rock. So let's work through it with Pool A and B first. Starting in Pool A, New Zealand, France, Italy, Uruguay, Namibia. All eyes slotty on this pool are on the opening night, the 8th of September. The French, the home nation against the All Blacks. We just heard from Will and Alex in terms of how excited they are for this World Cup. That is, I mean, that's as good a curtain raiser as we've had for a World Cup, isn't it? Yeah, I think it's the best best kickoff ever. Um, I agree with what Alex was saying before. I think this could, should be the best Rugby World Cup ever for, for all the reasons he noted, plus the fact that the leading nations are all, the, the, the brand of rugby that World Rugby's been trying to tempt out of the game that is sort of, edging towards something pretty decent at the moment. You've got lots, lots of nations playing <coughs> a really good game. And yeah, the, the, that opening night, you know, after just what we've seen the last few weeks, I mean, it, you couldn't get anything better than that. 
Is it an oversimplification? I know that's a great opening fixture. I know. Are you, all of you going to be at that, by the way? Or Will, are you already Not in Marseille? Really, no. You're already in Down Marseille. Marseille yeah. Alex Slotty, you both yeah, at that one? Yeah. So it's going to be a fantastic occasion. After that game, is Paul A pretty much decided? Yeah. 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 Both are going to go through. I mean, poor old Italy. They've in a different way to Scotland, which we'll, we'll get onto. If you're an Italian fan, you're probably like, "This is one of the best Italian teams we've ever had," and we get drawn with the All Blacks in France. Like, do you that, not wish we had Italy in the England group? I mean, yeah, that would be really with Paolo Adogwu breaking through the England backliners. That would be great fun, wouldn't it? But uh, yes, to answer your question, I think whether New Zealand or France win that first game, they're both going through, aren't they? And then it gets seriously tasty. But it's. So, so that's probably the only group where there's less jeopardy, but the result of that opening night has a massive impact on what happens down the line because Ireland and South Africa and Scotland are, are, are battling in their pool, which we'll come to, for the right to play probably the winners of, of that game or avoid the winners of that game in the quarters. But the, the one thing I would say about Paul A is in these conversations, we always focus on the massive games. That France-New Zealand is, is the biggest opening game that I think we've ever had in a World Cup. But some of the stories, some of the, the colour, some of the most joyful occasions at a Rugby World Cup come from games like Namibia v Uruguay. And this is a, and, and Italy are, they're, they're unfortunate to find themselves in, in that pool. We saw how well they played against Japan last weekend. They're a team on, on the rise. They're not going to come out, of, come out of that group. But I think some of the rugby we'll see, some of the colour and just some of the storylines that you get from the the inverted commas smaller games and the the lower ranked teams can often be some of the most enjoyable experiences at a World Cup. Just go back to what you you said about the jeopardy. So we know that we presume that the All Blacks and France will go through. To what extent do those two nations, how important is it for them to win that game beyond momentum, confidence, that kind of thing? Because they know that they know that their prize at the end of it is South Africa or Ireland. So you would, if I was them, I'd want to win because you're more likely to play Ireland in the next in the next round. I mean, is that what we're saying? It's that's how important it is. I would suggest it's important for France to keep winning at home because I think what in the last twenty three matches they've won twenty two at home. The one they lost was to Scotland in the Six Nations when it was behind closed doors during COVID. To keep that kind of air of this is a very difficult French team to beat at home for this tournament would would probably be my counter-argument to yeah, that. Yeah, and, and for the tournament, if France were to open it with a big victory over the All Blacks at the Stade de France, you just feel it would lift. It, it, it's exactly the kick-off that the World Cup would want. It, it won't, I don't think it'll lose anything if they were to lose that, that day because this is a two-month event and there's a, there's a long time for, for people to stay excited. But if they win it, like just reading John Westerby's piece, I don't know if anyone, anyone's read... It's brilliant. It was awesome, wasn't it? Yeah. Spent two or three days down in, in the village where Antoine Dupont is from. It's like really getting into the, the heart and soul of French rugby. I'd advise anyone to go and read it. It's a brilliant piece because it's so evocative about what this tournament will do. And it places you in these villages in the south of France where rugby is everything. And if France were to open the tournament with a, with a big win on the Friday night, a statement victory... The whole place will be nuts. It'd be like if anyone's been on the Tour de France, you follow the Tour de France, it's, the villages get taken over. There's just a, there's a spirit, a joy about it. And the whole place will be electrified if, if France win that. So in t- in, from a rugby perspective, it's important because they'll want to finish first and they might get Ireland 
if we think South Africa are going to be Ireland. But from a tournament perspective, which is what we're all interested in in particular, it would just electrify the whole thing if they were to open it with a win. Yeah, I was just wishing I'd say what Alfie said because um, because he's presenter and smart. But also, I'm thinking back to, to 2007, the opening game France lost to Argentina, didn't they, by five or six points or something. And that's kind of sucked something out of, mm-hmm. out of the event. So, as you say, you kind of want them to win just to really sort of maximize everything that we're looking forward to i was gonna mention that too because i guess you were there slotty were you or i i I wasn't at that game but i was you at the world cup yeah Yeah. because i I was just thinking none of the coaches yeah yeah i was yeah Uh, i I literally was (laughs) none of the none of the coaches or none of the players in this french setup were involved in that but there must be a sense from the ffr that they need to nail it because the last time they hosted the tournament they lost to Argentina they then lost to them again didn't they later in the tournament to come forth yeah they did but the tournament was good yeah but from the French perspective nailing that first thing for all the controversies around France being the host this time getting the tournament ahead of South Africa Bernard Laporte's involvement um, A I think they'll be the perfect hosts but they have worked incredibly well to align the entire nation behind it which has never happened before you've never had this the, the top fourteen and the and the French national team working in consort as they are now. The whole pyramid of the game in France is geared around this tournament, and so while that would make a massive difference if France were to win it, and they're in a, a wonderful position to do it, I think the tournament will thrive anyway because the the nation's been prepared so well to host it. Also, I suppose that I think you mentioned this on a pod we did a few weeks ago, Alex, that. France can take heart from South Africa's experience last time is that if they actually do lose the opening game it is now possible to win the World Cup well, someone's done it before and in exactly the same way lose to New Zealand on the opening night and, and we'll, we're, we're going to go through the pools here but we're talking about the left-hand side of the draw it's stacked can anyone win seven straight games when you know, if you take Pool B which we'll, which we'll come to where let's say Ireland have to can, will they beat Scotland and South Africa and then, of course, a final, semi-final, final. Isn't there a big conversation in here about whether you throw a game's the wrong thing? But if you've won enough to be confident you're going to go through, then do you sacrifice a later massive clash? Um, that would be in the in the pool B, wouldn't it? If you're um, yeah, so if you're Ireland and you've already beaten South Africa, for instance, and then you've got Scotland in your last round, do you? put in your B team does that have shades of I'm thinking back to the Football World Cup 2018 uh, yeah, yeah Southgate yeah. Didn't they, they sort of didn't want definitely to lose to Belgium but they didn't try that hard to beat them did they in the pool and then they got a real easy draw was it via Colombia and Sweden and then ended up playing Croatia in the semi and lost and yeah. so you thought and no one gave them any credit because they got an easy easy ride so we could do the same for Ireland yeah. if they do that they're not really <laughs> but world I, champions and uh, maybe, had an easy world cup again we're sort of jumping between pools a bit but I feel like particularly with Ireland just because they've never had a run in a world cup and I know again lots of different players lots of similar players different coaching setup. you think they can't be overthinking it and throwing games they've just got to throw everything at it like maybe possibly South Africa but you just can't see them, although canny as Razzie and Jacques Nina are, you can't see someone actively wanting to lose. Well, we'll get on to 
Ireland in a minute. I would say, just on your point, Slotty, I, I look at Pool B and we will come on to it. There's a good chance, I think, that Ireland, South Africa, Scotland, it could be a pool where they all end up with the same amount of wins and it yeah. works out that way, which might... Points difference. Yeah, points difference, exactly. Just staying on Pool A for just a second. I want to move on to the All Blacks because I think they're a fascinating case, particularly after what we saw a week or so ago at Twickenham against the Springboks. Just a final one on France. How heavily would you have France in the favourites conversation if it wasn't at home? Are they still right up there? for all of you or do you think home advantage plays a big part definitely yeah definitely and I think basically the only games they've lost of note recently have been to Ireland and in Dublin to Ireland mm. they smashed the All Blacks the last time they played them in France albeit the All Blacks just got battered by the Springboks but they look a better All Black team than they did in 2022 didn't they in 2021 I would say so what do you think Alex yeah definitely I think they are a genuine contender wherever it's played and the, the challenge that Fabian Galtier and uh, and his coaching staff have is to ensure that home advantage becomes an advantage and, and, and not a pressure and not a pressure and just from watching their game against Australia I think they'll feed off it everything we've seen when we saw them win the Grand Slam they beat England at home they just fed off that stage they're a young team who feels feels really France 98 to me it feels there's a nation behind them they, they're a young team this is their this is their time. I'm not necessarily saying I think they'll win, but I think I, I think the fact they can, I think they will tap into the fact they're at home and use that to their advantage. But it's which comes back to winning the first game. Like if they can do that, then the place will go nuts, and is they it, can they can thrive off it. So isn't it the whole the the whole mentality that, or the, the way that Galtier's tried to pre- prepare them psychologically is he's divorced this new team from the old team post-2019 World Cup into 2020 uh, Six Nations and everyone's going oh he's gone mad he's picked this ludicrously young team he basically he, he chopped off the legs of the old team the, the, all, all the players who had a history of underperforming or a history of anxiety and, 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 and not having the right sort of the, the famous flaky French mentality he just got rid of that lot and these boys playing now they've, they're the teams that have won and as the juniors and, and over four years we've seen them again and again we said oh are they, are they going to have that flaky French thing and they haven't they haven't once done that they won a Grand Slam they've done the whole lot so I don't see why the Home World Cup should be the one where they finally display what, what we dismiss as stereotypical yeah, French rugby behaviour I completely get what you're all saying. The reason I asked it, actually, and I could be completely wrong here, this can be my, my first kind of big opinion with hosting the ruck and it will fall on its face and everyone will be like, well, what on earth does he know? I just feel like France haven't been playing as well as they did when they won the Grand Slam at the start of 2022 for a while. I know they've still been winning, but I'm not sure their performances have quite been at that level, which is, which is why I asked the question. But I get, I think Elgin Olderman said on last week's podcast, this is the French team that have everything in place to go and win the World Cup in terms of the way the fans are behind them, in terms of the team that Fabian Galtier and his coaching staff have put together. So I do get where you're coming from. Let's move on to the All Blacks, because as I said previously, I think they're really interesting. I watched them in the Rugby Championship and thought, okay, the All Blacks look back here, particularly that first 20 minutes against the Springboks. And then they absolutely got it handed to them on Friday night the other week at Twickenham. Where are we with this All Blacks team and how good they are? Any scars from that defeat to the Springboks? How... Are you all viewing them? So I've had to write 1,600 words on this for, <laughs> for our pullout, which we're pre-recording this. So came out on Saturday, we'll say. And it's, it's a really weird one to talk through, I think, because with any comparison you're making between what is currently the All Black team, you're comparing it to basically the greatest team that's ever played rugby, the one that came before it, the sort of 2011 to 2015 lot. And we've got episodes coming up, our 
How to Win the World Cup special. There's your plug. We'll get Slotty's book plug in a bit later, but... Let's go on to plugs now. Come on, let's get it all out <laughs> Wait, of the way. So you've got a here. series on how to win a yeah, World Cup. Yeah, we do, yeah. And That's we spoke, fantastic. We spoke to you on it as well at some point. <laughs> so you did. Do you remember? Yeah. yeah. No, that's, that's the, yeah, the listener, great episode. The listeners won't have heard that episode yet. Not but, yet. But, but you're right. what I'm going to say is that we've got Conrad Smith coming later who talks about 2011 and 2015. And he made a really fascinating point, I thought, which was essentially that this era are more fearful of the northern hemisphere sides than his lot ever were and for good reason because he was saying his lot worried about south africa periodically because their rivalry waxed and waned a bit over their era but they didn't lose them that often really and australia they worried about a bit because of sort of the little brother big brother thing but that was kind of it across the world they didn't have to deal with a, a brilliant england they didn't have to deal with They'd never lost to Wales, they'd never lost to Ireland, they'd never lost to Scotland, France were no good. They'd beat them every now and then, but not much. So He said it was harder for the current All Blacks. Yeah, that's he? what yeah. I mean. So as in that these guys have now got a tougher rugby scene, so maybe the fact that they were pretty poor and lost 7 of 12 tests between 21 and 22 is a reflection more of the scene around the world than necessarily the All Blacks being absolutely terrible. What I'm interested in about the All Blacks is... that. After 19, when Steve Hansen said that he felt they were good enough to win the World Cup, but they didn't. They didn't really... They opted not to change a huge amount. Steve Hansen retired and Ian Foster stepped up. Different people, but not dissimilar characters. I think Steve Hansen's probably got a better sense of humour, but really, they're not that different. They'd worked together for so long. Now, in a lot of senses, that continuity is what it's what unions want. They, they want to know the succession plan. But I just wonder whether the way that, that New Zealand had, had dominated the world for eight years and then didn't win the 19 World Cup, whether that was an opportunity to, to just veer off in a slightly different direction, bring some more energy to it. And it really felt to 2021, they were struggling and Ian Foster was a game away from being sacked. and Scott Robertson had been, had been lined up to take over. They've pulled it around... But I just wonder whether they're quite as advanced as they have been in in, in the past. And that's why I go back to what I said at the start. Joe Schmidt's involvement could be the difference because I don't think under the management team that they had, there was enough fresh thought and ideas. It was continuation of everything that had been successful, but it needed a a step change. So one thing I discussed in this piece, which is a, a... maybe slightly half-baked theory but I feel like it's got some legs is that I think that Covid affected New Zealand more than they might admit or others have realised because literally it isolated them they were only playing against themselves for a year really they had north-south games and they had super rugby among each other so they were sort of entrenching all of the ideas and the Crusaders have never had a challenger they've won seven editions of whatever Super Rugby's been called over that period they also then lost the South Africa tests for a whole year and all of the Northern Hemisphere tests where they might have tried different things or played a different way they also lost the Super Rugby franchises from South Africa who moved to the URC and the Jaguars who had made the 2019 final of Super Rugby so you're suddenly almost like the, the lockdown locked them into their own islands and played a bit of trans-Tasman stuff with Australia but possibly meant that they were slower Mm. when they came out of Covid the European teams have been playing each other a bit more and France and Ireland had grown a bit and they were left behind and then got beaten by them and so now they're sort of expediting the process a bit quicker. I think the All Blacks will be backing themselves particularly after what happened at Twickenham to maybe 
potentially try and surprise a few people on that opening night. Let's move on, though. Just a final word on that, Paul. Obviously, for Italy, as we've mentioned already, lots of hope for them, but it's going to be a difficult one to get out of. And Alex, you were right, I think, to point out Uruguay and Namibia. It might not be the glamour story of this group, but when they meet on the 27th of September for both nations, that is a massive fixture that I'm really looking forward to. Loads more to get into on today's pod, though. So next up, we'll get into Pool B. Into Pool B, South Africa, Ireland and Scotland. Those will probably be the teams that will be grabbing the headlines and a lot of people's interest. Also Tonga and Romania. The group of death, gents, it's a group of almost where on earth do we start with this pool? We've mentioned it already and how tight and competitive it's going to be. I'm happy to leave it open to you guys. Ireland, South Africa, Scotland, your thoughts? Where where do we want to go with this one? This is the hardest World Cup pool of all time. Discuss. Yeah, because even Tonga... Because of World Rugby's law, um, eligibility law change, they're stronger than they've ever been because they have Charles Pietau, a fullback, Malachi Fekitoa, an outside centre, to name just two. Like they, Adam Coleman, second row. Adam Rowe. Coleman, second yeah. row. Like that's that's nows. A lot of these the, the Pacific Islands teams often they play on instinct. They they play how they they're brought up to play. I had a wonderful chat with um, Stephen Luatua about what it's like playing for the local village in in Samoa. You just play. Like there, it's just hard. You know, you've got to earn your stripes physically, and that's that's how Samoa play. Often, it's the game management. We saw we saw it with Fiji the other week against England. But if you get some top level All Blacks and Wallabies into that team, Tonga will be better than arguably better than ever. And yet, they've landed in a group where you think the best they can do is come fourth out of five because you got the you got Scotland who are fifth in the world, and then you got Ireland who are number one, and South Africa who are the reigning champions. But on your hardest group ever, I mean, that's a bit harsh on England in 2015 when they have <laughs> Wales yeah. and Australia, isn't it? I mean, but, well, England are very good, though. They could be classed as a not very good team at that point, maybe. <laughs> they, they used to come second a lot. Yeah. But they the fourth, just came third in that group. But the fourth team in that group was, was Fiji, I, I who take England put four, yeah. put four tries on I, I, just I, you, on, on the opening yeah, I take your like, point. I'm just teasing them, really. The, the, one, the, the thing that I'm looking forward to the most, maybe, in this pool is Scotland. I just yeah. think they're... S- that that could be so fun because they've got a style that they are really in, are enjoying playing that is very good, successful, and different to South Africa and Ireland. And they can, I reckon, they can. They might not, but they can be either of those teams. Mm-hmm. And then, as you mentioned before, Alfie, huge banana skin that throws it all out, and then it's suddenly like a points race against Tonga or Romania for the others. What's also I think been interesting with this pool is the way in which teams have use their World Cup warm-ups in that South Africa and Scotland, because they meet on the opening weekend, have had to basically try and go fully loaded and be fully ready to go for the opening weekend, whereas Ireland have chopped and changed. Johnny Sexton will return for their opening match against Romania. Then they've got Tonga, so they've got time to try and ease their way into the tournament as well. I don't, I don't think Scotland can beat South Africa. I, just don't, I, think, I think that physically they just cannot match that. But I have every confidence that they... Well, I don't, I don't think they, I'm not saying that I think they will beat Ireland, but that Scotland-Ireland game, if... It, if if it was played five times, I reckon they might win two of them. You know, I think I think there are some decent odds, and the World Cup brings a whole a whole new mentality to it. Ireland will be absolutely terrified of going down and, and, and underperforming as their World Cup history shows, and it kind of Scotland have got everything to everything to play for. The, the thing that I, we should get Mark Palmer on to talk more about Scotland, but the thing that excites me about Scotland is that, is that they are committed to the way they're going to play. I don't think they'll beat South Africa. But I think the way they play gives them a chance. It's not 
quite the rock and run rugby of Japan that saw them beat South Africa in 2015. But they will play wide, they'll play fast, they've got pace, they've got invention. It requires it to work and it requires them to have some kind of a foothold up front. I, I'm sort of thinking that this is, this is, the Scots will hate this, but I'm thinking back to South Africa, Japan in the last World Cup when Japan were fast, quick, did all those sort of things that, that, that actually got under the skin yeah. of a lot of other, other nations and the, the Springboks come along and just go, so, sorry. Demolish them. But, yeah. then, but then I'm and, thinking... And that's, of... quite, that's quite possible. But all I'm saying is I like the fact that Scotland know who they are and they're not going to do... Like, I think if England played South Africa, England would just go, right, we're going to have to try and match them up front. And then they'd get blown away. Yeah. At least Scotland, who, who, by the way, have some like serious Big forwards. units, yeah, yeah. That's not... They, they, they have another idea. They're going to go about this in their way with Finn Russell at 10 for example like they're going to they're going to try and play they're going to try and beat them and I just I like the idea that Scotland will go into that game mm. and go out and try and beat them rather than try not to get demolished you don't think Finn Russell's going to say come on we can take him up front <laughs> but that's what I was going to mention when you said oh you're thinking about South Africa Japan I'm thinking about the third test of the Lions which you were at Slotty, the behind closed doors lines 21 where Dan Bigger goes off early for an HA and Finn Russell comes on and he suddenly go oh my god it could have been so different. Yeah. Like all these suddenly attacking yeah, shape yeah. comes to the running lines, like different four pack maybe. But you just sort of think ah, with Finn Russell there, there is there is a chance. Like and, I don't think they will beat ball them. Player but at fifteen, which Stuart Hogg, Blair Kinghorn's better for, for, fit. for his qualities. Yeah. I think Blair Kinghorn actually is better for Scotland. I also think psychologically it's really interesting for Scotland because of what we've spoken about. In that, yes, they're in a group where they could look at it and be like, "Blimey, how have we ended up in this group?" But in a way, it takes the pressure off them. There's not that pressure on them where you need to get to a quarterfinal. Most people probably aren't expecting them to get out of this group, which I think maybe frees them up, Alex, to play the brand of rugby that they want to play. We're going to have to move on, guys, just because we are running out of time. We could probably spend ages on all of these pools. Just finally on Pool B, Scotland, Ireland, South Africa. Who have you all got coming out of it? Is it the Ireland and South Africa? Can you see Scotland causing an upset? I'm going South Africa top the group, Ireland second just. But I can, they could lose to Scotland on that last day and it go down to points difference. Yeah, I, I, I completely with that. It's, just, it's so exciting. It, it's, I mean, it, it's, as you say, you, we, you don't tend to have these conversations about the group stages of a Rugby World Cup. It's brilliant. Yeah, it's fantastic. I think, you know, you sneak a losing bonus. Scotland get a losing bonus against South Africa. I forgot about bonus points. A, a, month, yeah. a month later, that, that could be critical. You know, when, you, when Ireland plays Scotland on October the 7th, in a head-to-head to qualify for the quarterfinals. I mean, that's mega. Just one final thing, I think, as well, to flag with the fixtures. Ireland have their two-week break as well, don't they, between the Springbok game and the Scotland game as well. So I think in terms of the fixtures of that group, actually for Ireland, it's probably worked out the best for in that they've got Tonga and Romania first, then the Springboks, and then the two-week I lo- break. I love the, all this talk of the two-week breaks. You sort of imagine them sort of going off to the Maldives or something. <laughs> you know, Taking cocktails for a bit. Well, yeah. the, the reality might be that the Springboks have beaten them up so savagely with a 7-1 bench. They've got no forwards <laughs> left, so they need two weeks to get a whole load of new ones out. Quite possibly. Maybe I was looking to be too positive. Right, <laughs> moving on. Uh, next up, we'll get stuck into Pool C. listening to me daisy apple's iphone disassembly robot is dismantling an iphone into lots of recyclable parts that's how apple recovers more materials than conventional recycling methods thanks daisy there's more to iphone cool fact 
a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Okay, on to Pool C. Wales, Australia, Fiji, Georgia and Portugal. We've just been talking about Pool B as the group of death. For a different way, maybe because some of the sides aren't as good quality. This is another pool of death. I love this pool. Yeah. I love this one because we start with Portugal. The very, the very fact that they're there and the way they got there with the last minute, last kick penalty to draw with the USA in the repechage tournament to qualify. And then on the ruck, we had Thomas Appleton two days later, who was back at work at a hospital in Lisbon. I, I just love the fact they're even there. Then you've got Fiji, who we've all seen how dangerous they are and actually the kind of the received wisdom is you need five world-class players in a team Fiji have got more world-class players I think than any other team in that group you could know yeah. you, you know when you, most of them are in the backs but they've got a collection of players that would walk in to the Australia team and the Wales team so that is that's thrilling and I actually think that although they're seen as they're the third seeds they are a serious quarter-final team then you've got Georgia with their wonderfully bearded, mustachioed props, who drove Wales into the ground in Cardiff last November. They monstered them. You know, they will be loving the idea of taking on the Wallabies, who who do have, a for once, a prop who might make a World 15 <laughs> conversation. Bell. Angus Bell, like, yeah. hell of a player. But he can't, he can't do it on his own. The Georgians have got about 15 of them. <laughs> like, Georgia are going to be there going, we can take the Wallabies, we can take Wales. And that's before you get to Wales and Australia, what they do to each other. Like, I love, I love this pool because there are so many narratives around it. You've got the, you know, you've got the, the new coaches in Wales and, and Australia, which is a whole other story. It's, it's probably my favourite pool, really, because of, because of everything that's possible. The please write us off pool, isn't it? Oh okay. yeah, no one wants to win. Everyone like they're all We're competing terrible. with the All Blacks at being under the radar. We're so bad. England They're... have played themselves under the radar. Why are you being so negative, mate? Why are you being so negative? At some at some point, our new presenters can say who do you think is going to win the pool? I, I haven't got a clue. Georgia. I mean, I, I, I literally, <laughs> I, I, don't, I, I don't have a clue. I, I think, no. I think it could well be Fiji win the pool. The Fiji we saw at the weekend are just going to get better. I mean, there's so many reasons why they're going to get better. I would love that. Like I remember we did our turn of the year pod that was looking back at 22 and forward to 23 and I think we all did like a new year's resolution of what we'd like to see happen in 23 and mine was I would love Fiji to have a properly good run at the World Cup like how good would that be if they won the pool and then just beat England in the quarter final or something you just go wow do you think though that despite where Wales and Australia are which is clearly not a great place in terms of performances and results that Warren Gatland in particular, but probably Eddie Jones as well, will back themselves to be able to engineer a game plan to see their teams through to a quarter final, whatever that might look like in terms of the style of rugby they play. You've got two captains of efficiency there. So, yes, that is a, a winning argument. But at the same time, you've got Fiji who have this ludicrous wealth of talent that captains of efficiency sometimes can fail to contain. 
Well, I was thinking about this. That I think I read about it in Rugby World. Ken Owens did a column about it and talked about Fiji because obviously it's Wales's first game. And I was covering Wales largely at the last World Cup and they played them in, I think, their second game. And they were all over the place at the start because Tuasova literally ran over Josh Adams about four times. Semi Rajraja was at his peak then where he's maybe slightly dipped uh, after a couple of seasons at Bristol. And they had to revert to... Okay, shut this game down, set piece, and all that. And they had a team that could do that then with Alan Wynne Jones and all that lot. Whereas I don't think they do anymore. They certainly don't have as good a front row. They've got a lot of callow younger players in the group too. So actually, that is a huge banana skin for them in the first game. And I'm not sure they can necessarily just go, cool, we'll just go to the line out, the scrum, kick for territory, and we'll win the game. I think the thing with Fiji is they've got, as we said, they've got the back division to scare anybody in the world. Mark Evans was was on the pod recently, wasn't he, talking about they've got two years now of Fiji Drua playing professional rugby. They can play strategy. They've got forwards who can... I mean, the line-out to Twickenham was a disaster area. Imagine how dangerous they'd have been if they'd actually had a line-out to play off. There's a bit more order to them. Mark's view is there'll be some benefit in this World Cup. The main benefit of the Drua will be in, in four years' time. They, they still need to string performances together, but we know how dangerous they can be. They, they beat England without Navani Bottia and Tuasova. Their, their talent outside the pack is extraordinary. They've got a 10 who can kick goals. And they've got forwards who can... I mean, they, they dealt with England's morning game pretty well. They're, they're a threat, but I'm you know, fascinated to what Eddie does and, and what Gatlin does. I, I, one thing I, that I'm so interested about this pool or, or, or Fiji slash Samoa and Tonga is to what extent does the psychology of being the underdog team play here? To what extent does the psychology of the fact that these players aren't going to get rich on the back of this? Welshmen and Australia and are, uh, Australians are on a, on, a, on a decent buck, whatever happens. The English players are on a decent buck, whatever happens. Fiji and, and, and the other Pacific Islanders, they, they're, they're playing for passion and, and for national pride and all, all these things that we don't know how much... They've been jaded in in the what we traditionally call the or historically call the first tier countries. So, so they've actually got something different. Uh, you, you know, we said it four years ago. South Africa had they had they came with something different. It, the World Cup meant something more to them than, than England in the final and probably lots of others. And I wonder if that applies here. I think your your question about what does Jones bring and what what does Gatland bring. The, the higher purpose for Australia is that the funny thing is he would never have done this if he was still England coach. Yeah. But he's, he's gone to Australia and he's seen the team they had with a Quake Cooper and and, and, the, and Michael Hooper who is injured but you wonder whether he'd have made it anyway and gone, well, we're not winning the World Cup with these guys. We've got a Lions tour in two years' time and a home World Cup in four years' time. So I'm just going to rip the plaster off and pick the kids. They've got a fly half who who doesn't kick goals in Super Rugby. Kicked his first ever penalty playing in, t- in, a, in a Bledisloe Cup game against the Wallabies. And he's the only fly half. And he's the only fly <laughs> half. In, in, like I'm amazed they didn't bring Bernard Foley or someone as a as a steady squad mentor. But Eddie's just gone. Well, those lot weren't going to win it, and we've got a higher. We've got more to aim for beyond this World Cup. So let's just go for it and see. Is that what it's all about then? Because Eddie Jones keeps saying. We've got a plan to win the World Cup, as you guys would have heard multiple times when he was in charge of England. For Australia, this is about the Lions Tour and a World Cup in four years' time. Though, I, I, I think there are parallels with France at the last World Cup, where Galtier was on that coaching team. He wasn't the head coach, but there was a he was formulating plans for four years hence. And, and I think that's exactly what Eddie Jones has done. He's really ripped the plaster off. And Gatland has done 
has done it in a, in a semi way. He's put a few senior players out to pasture. There are still a couple of senior players there, but the accent of that Wales squad is now youth. That's Jack Morgan, Dowry Lake co captains. He's ripped out a lot of experience because he also looked at it and was like, well, we're not going to, these guys won't do it. So we might as well go for it. And where I find it interesting is that England have taken the other approach and they've retained all their veterans, of underperforming veterans of 19 in the hope of muddling through. So all I can say that your question was, do they have a game plan to, to make a, a quarter? I think it's more that they've decided that what, what existed before, what Gatland and Jones, before they took over, they decided, well, that, that lot isn't going to do it. So our best bet is to bring in the youth and, and have, a, have a crack. So if you're a team facing some rampaging Fijians... Are you better equipped to deal with them if you've got experience and, and, and now, but maybe slightly jaded players? Uh, I'm, I'm, I, that's a vague reference to England. Or, 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 if, or if you're young and you've not seen the world and, 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 you haven't, and you're not so scared like the Welshman and the, Australian, and the Wallabies. I think it's slight contradiction from what I said before about Wales maybe not having the game that they could shut it down like they did in 2019. But... I think they will be better equipped for a Fiji game than Australia will be for the like because they've got the likes of a 9 and 10 with loads of caps like Dan Bigger, Gareth Davis, Thomas Williams, those guys and they've got at least some experience of Lions Test, Liam Williams, Josh Adams, Halfpenny around the group whereas Aussie have got absolutely zero. They've got I'll nothing. I'll tell you what's fascinating for me about the Wallabies and and Eddie Eddie Jones has has come in to be their head coach as much to try and sell the sport back to the Australian public as anything else. They'll go into their opening game against Georgia having lost five out of five. They got 40 points put on them by France on last weekend in the final warm-up game. But by having picked the kids, there's a whole different perspective around that team. It's like we can see Carter Gordon understanding a bit more how to play test rugby. It completely changes the conversation around what Australia are. If, If they'd gone there with test centurions in that team and conceded 40, the conversation would have to have been like it has been with England, which is, is this all there is? He's actually totally changed the perspective on what Australia can do, which is, well, let's, let's have a go. And, and I, I was fascinated by the, the commentary around that, that heavy defeat by France, which is actually more positive than we've seen, say, with England, who've lost three out of four warm-up games and barely a positive to be found I think you could say the same about Wales as well the perception of where that team is compared with England again is completely different also I think we need to move on to England's pool but something we've kind of touched upon talking about this pool and throughout is styles of rugby and I think that's going to be something that's fascinating in this World Cup just looking at this pool Georgia are in a tight game they'll have a a game plan that can possibly get them results Fiji obviously we know the style of play they play Scotland we spoke about in the last group with looking to I think there's so many teams with Really interesting, different styles of rugby in this World Cup, which will be really, really interesting. Let's get on to the final pool, Pool D and England. Um, I mean, England, Japan, Argentina, Samoa, Chile. Guys, you spend a lot of time in the England camp, chatting to the England camp. How would you just assess the mood of where this England team is on the eve of a World Cup? Do you want to go for it first? I mean, I, I, is that a horrible question I, just I to throw you away? It's not funny. It's never been worse. We're not going to lose lots of listeners at this point. I think this is probably what they have, what they're here for. In all honesty, it's, it's, tell us, tell a joke or something. Go on. It's never been worse. It's quite sad. Like I, I wasn't at the last game because I was away and you did it, but I was at the Ireland one, and my Monday piece after that was sort of trying to reflect the sort of. I just felt depressed watching an England sporting team. 
and sad. Like it was just less sort of embarrassing, and it sounds like one of those ones where you're like, "I'm not angry, I'm disappointed," which is all a bit teachery, isn't it? But it is just so sad watching how bad they are. I think the thing is, Alfie, that that it's it's like the England team. We've got Alex and Will here. They're like jaded old campaigners and they've got nothing cheerful left in them and I'm going to I'm going to march into Marseille on Saturday week and, and be full of jokes you're going to be Alex Mitchell how great they are up yeah. the tempo and, and everyone's going to go thank goodness we've got Slotty on it <laughs> that's what they'll be saying with you back on this episode as well that was why we had to had to get you but in it, it, it is interesting like what is there so uh, World Cup warm-ups are pre-season games and usually they're just they're just treated in exactly that way in the situation that England are in with a new, relatively new coaching team and the Six Nations that still ended with another two wins out of five record for the third year in a row, these warm-up games were much more important than they usually are. And, I mean, there was there was the, the calamity of red cards. There was the unfortunate... Unfortunate to lose two players, two front-line players to injury. You know, whether you whether you out there would have Jack Van Portfleet as your squad half or not, we think... Seaborth it would have done. So Seaborth it will go into the opening game without his captain, his first choice number eight, his first choice scrum half, and one of the England players who is capable of delivering world class performances in Anthony Watson. So there's it's been a it's been a month of calamity. Maybe Tom Curry as well. Maybe Tom Curry. I mean there's there's all sorts of shadiness around injuries, but where are the where are the positives? For anyone to to grab onto, and where's the, you know we saw the, the the set piece improve a bit in the Six Nations from where it was, but it couldn't get any worse. It did get better, but now that doesn't look that looks shaky. The, the the attacking game is clunky and inaccurate. They can't convert pressure into points at all. It's like you're desperately hoping to find something to grab onto, and really the only thing left is that is that Alan Walters, the fitness guru has got a master plan all along and they're going to emerge out of this conditioning block and be like superheroes against Argentina. Like there's literally nothing else to hold on to unless he just, he rips off the plaster within the squad he's got. Well, you did a piece in the Times last week about how to fix England. What does a good World Cup for England look like? Well, you say what does it look like now? Mm. I would say that a good World Cup for England should always be semi-final like they, I'm not saying they have a, a divine right to be there but with the investment that they make and the and the resources playing resources talent like England should always be competing for a place in the final in, in my view where they are now at the start of this month you like this is not you'd say that this group didn't have enormous jeopardy on it there were some trickier games but England and Argentina will go through now a month later I think you're thinking Samoa with with Stephen Lewatua and the that on the last game is a major, majorly treacherous game for England. A, a, a good result for England is to get to the get to the semi-finals. Can I flip it another way, which is maybe putting our journalism hats on again? At what point are we genuinely going to have to have a conversation about Steve Borthwick's future? Is there any scenario where he actually could lose his job? Like if England lose in the we'll pool, really? Do we have to do that? I now? know we don't want to, and like people go, "Are oh, you being negative and everything else?" But is that a conversation for later? Possibly no. But all I'm thinking is, if if they do, if they don't make it out of the easiest pool that they've possibly ever had, 
that is... He's absolutely right. Horrendous, isn't it? it it's not... It, it, like, we don't want people to get sacked, but that, that will be a conversation topic at the well, end of September. Let's just be clear. We've said this beforehand. We'd rather England do well than do badly. That's, absolutely, yeah. Despite how, how it may sometimes appear in the media. But, but yeah, the direction of travel is, is disaster, and at the end of disaster, people lose their heads. I mean... I'm, I hope that doesn't happen. But. And, I, and I, I think maybe there's the context. It's, so for the Six Nations, I think, fans and journalists and lots of people would g- have given Borth a complete pass and just said he was appointed a month before, had a week before with the team, and try and do what you can. Didn't, didn't have his coaches. Didn't have his coaches, exactly. Whereas now you're looking at it and you're going, OK, it's still not that long, but... Simon Rao-Louis had less time with Fiji. They've now had nine tests under Borthwick. He's picked exactly the squad he wanted. He's got exactly the coaching staff he wanted. He's got the best fitness coach in the world, he says, and the second best fitness coach in the world, he says, Adam Walters and Tom Tomlinson. He's got the most experienced England squad that they've ever put together, and they lost to Fiji at home. So you're sort of like, all the goodwill has been lost over the last four weeks, hasn't it, Alex? If England were to lose to Argentina and somehow, I mean, we don't. I mean, Japan got got thumped pretty comfortably by by Italy. It doesn't look like Japan are the team at this World Cup that they have been at the two previous World Cups. So, I think what we're what we're talking about here is could England lose to Argentina and Samoa? If they do, in some ways, Steve Borthwick, having been hired for five years, he won't have advanced the team in any way. They'd have gone backwards. But as anyone who's read the Times in the last two weeks if not longer there's a massively bigger conversation here about you know the bloke who hired him in the first place the structure within which they work the pathways that the RFU have allowed to be destroyed over over a number of years there's a there's a much bigger conversation that would need to happen and actually does need to happen regardless much bigger than just do we sack Steve Borthwick and hire Ron Nogara there's so much more here I I think I still think England will make the quarterfinals I still think that by the time they make that Argentina, the, the, the Samoa game, sorry, on, the, on the, last, the last round of the pool matches, they'll have enough about them to beat, to beat Samoa and make the quarterfinals. And, and then I'm, I'm not confident that they, they'd get any further than that. But I'm not sure a year ago when England were, were, were still losing that I'd have thought they'd have got much further than that. Can anyway. I just make a quick other point? I agree completely with all of that. What I was just going to add was that it's actually really, really difficult for England to get knocked out of the pool because it also needs whoever they lose to to win all of their other games so like if they lose to Japan Japan have then also got to beat yeah. two other teams or Samoa so they are, even if they do lose to Samoa which I don't think they will Samoa then also would have had to have beaten Chile which they probably will and also Japan so you're kind of thinking there's so much in there for England they could fall into the quarterfinal and then it's a, a fun game against either Wales Australia or Fiji well, the point I was just making there about how does he change it so Alfie mentioned we were all asked to, to come up with an idea of what could change within within two weeks. And well, I had t- two thoughts I shared, but one of them was, was selection. There are, there are England players who are being picked at the moment regardless of performance. Like, Freddie Stewart is nailed on to play at 15. Mario Toji is nailed on to play in the second row. Just really quickly, Alex, I was, this was going to be the, the next point I came on to of you look at that England team, what are the best combinations? Who starts where? I think there's so much uncertainty, which is obviously kind of what you're saying in terms of who... Yeah, who but his, and his instinct is, has been to stick with the players he knows, either the players he played with or has coached before. It all looks to me a bit too comfortable. We're hearing interesting little snippets from in the camp 
after a month of, of everyone, anyone who criticised England would be told by Kevin Sinfield or Richard Wigglesworth, well, you should watch us in training because it's all, it all looks amazing. Largely not allowed to. Which yeah. we're not allowed to, so it's, it's a very easy out. Until they lose to Fiji and George Ford says, do you know what, training's not been very good. We're not consistent enough. We make too many mistakes. You're like, wow. You know, who, who that comment is aimed at, whether it's at the players for not driving the standards or at the coaches for the quality of training, it's, it's un, unsure. Courtney Law is saying there are conversations about trying to change the game plan to bring the best out of the players. So they don't have what they need to play the game that he wants to play. But to play a game that might suit them, they don't have the time to, to implement it. So they are stuck. And I just think one of the only ways to do it is to, is, is, is to actually put some pressure on the players who are currently being picked automatically and go, well, do you know what, maybe we should play George Martin and Ollie Chesham in the second row because they are playing better and they're hungrier. And it's, it's almost tapping into what we spoke about earlier in the other group, the Wales and, and Australia group. Pick some players who are hungry, who might go and do something. It feels to me there are a lot of players very comfortable for their positions at the moment. This is what I feel like I've been making this point or trying to on the pod ever since I started at the Times. This is where I feel like these players now, quite a lot of them, is going to be the last World Cup. Like we don't need to go through the whole lot, but there'll be a lot of them that won't play at another one. So they they can't they can't just dribble through it and just go. Oh well, it wasn't the game plan that suited us, or um, wasn't that on board with a sort of Leicester Saris game plan? Like take ownership, get on with it. You don't have to fully O seven it and go full Lawrence Delalio and just be like, right, thanks Brian Ashton, but we're going to do it ourselves. But you've got to think that there's enough in there, enough character and enough now and knowledge and rugby intellect to go firstly have a adult conversation with coaches that a lot of them know well because they played with them or have been coached by and say how can we resolve this together but also just to say look we're good enough as a group to sort this out ourselves we don't actually need all this detail we can just go and play and on that positive note see you in Marseille <laughs> this weekend Slotty do you want to do you want to round us off on England before we uh, get on to some of our hopes for the tournament and, and predictions it, just quickly it is fascinating though this whole conversation about England on the eve of a World Cup the whole tone of it which is the right tone it and is, it's a tone that's reflective of the fans Slotty has just published a book as we record it come on today Alex, here we go today oh. is publication day of the boys of winter that Owen has written with available in all good bookshops telling the story from 30 plus perspectives of England winning the World Cup 20 years ago a legacy that was trashed frankly and 20 years on we're talking about an England team at its lowest ebb Slotty went I read your book in two, in two days and there's so many things you think if this team had what that team has and even even a, a portion of it, they'd be fine. And I think that the bit that particularly transfers to what we're talking about now is is that 2003 team kind of did what we're talking about. There was a point after the Wales game where they went, hey, this is going really badly. Well, we, we need to do something. We need to address it. And and it wasn't described as a revolution or whatever. They just, there was a mature enough environment and uh, Clive Wilber was a democratic enough leader for the senior players to go, Clive, we're doing this wrong. We need to train differently. And Clive went, fine. And they trained differently and they won a World Cup. So this is what, where I think this England team is, is fatally flawed. And, and I think I put so much of it on the leadership, particularly on Owen Farrell, is... Is who is it who's leading that conversation? Who's facilitating it, or or are they just protecting their own positions in the team? And um, 
because that's how it looks. And at, at the moment, if Owen Farrell doesn't grasp it and say we're doing something, it doesn't have to be a 2007 type revolution, whether that was or wasn't. But it doesn't have to be like that. it. Just has to be mature conversations about how we're getting better. And I get the impression that they don't know how to do that. Well, fascinating. England-Argentina, 9th of September. Then this coming Saturday is when it all kicks off in Pool D. And we will keep you up to date on that and, of course, all the other pools throughout the World Cup. Next up, we'll finish off our World Cup preview podcast. We'll look at some of our hopes for the tournament and maybe, maybe a few predictions as well. All right, let's round things off then. Hopes for the World Cup predictions of who is going to win it. I'll start with one hope, and I mentioned it at the top of the podcast, actually, is that travel chaos can be avoided as best as possible. I think this is going to be a brilliant World Cup for a whole host of reasons. I'm just a little bit fearful that getting to France and getting around France for us might end up being a little bit difficult, but I'm sure many of the listeners will be sitting at home thinking, I'm not bothered about yeah, whether, whether, that, whether yeah. that affects you or not. But that's, <laughs> that's my hope, is that I can get around France and to France easily enough. Someone's going someone's gonna to miss a flight. I mean, it's Steve, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but I was actually more thinking about, a t- well, they won't miss a flight, but there'll be some sort of travel chaos around a big game, won't there? Like, Without being too stereotypical, we've already written, you've already written a story about it. The, the French quite yeah. enjoy a strike. Yeah, and we had it oh seven on the day of the final. Train drivers in Paris went on strike. It became really hard for people to get up to the Stade de France. It, it just there just will be some chaos around. And the first one that we know of is yeah the, the second weekend. So England, England, uh, Japan, and, and Wales, Portugal on the Friday. There's a uh, air traffic control strike. So England currently faced with a 10-hour train ride down to down to Nice from Le Touquet, where they're based, unless they can find another another plan. Private jet. I, I've got a hope for the tournament, and it, it's a, it's kind of a, a bit wishy-washy and esoteric, but I just feel that rugby has sustained so many blows as a sport globally over a decade. Really, um, it's really struggling to work out where to go and. Um, losing its position certainly in England but in many parts of the world and kind of as, as we said at the beginning of this podcast it looks like it could be the best World Cup ever and and I just I just hope that come the end of October we're all walking away from Paris just feeling really inspired by the the, the seven weeks that we just had and and people are going god that was that was amazing because I, I just feel that's what it what it could be and, and rugby as a sport just so needs it and, and this could be the moment I think you're, I think rugby in in our part of the world definitely needs it, and which is why I said at the start that France are are the perfect hosts for this tournament because it is a vibrant sport in France at all levels at the moment. They they're not struggling in the way that that we're struggling in in the UK, um, certainly in England. So uh, England and Wales. Um, so I think that I think everything is there. Alpha, you've written on our our notes here will officiating take centre stage that mm. one of the things that will change the conversation that we were, that we're all having as we walk away from the World Cup is the impact on red cards and, and bans and we think that the the drama on, on the field and the, and the rivalries and the, the fixtures that we're that are spread out in front of us here on our sheets of paper are extraordinary it could be wonderful we all have to accept that there are games and personal stories that are going to be impacted massively by Red cards, because as Totti said, one of the one of the massive issues that the game is facing is is player welfare and, and and head injuries, and the way that they have chosen to handle it is by dishing out more and more red cards. 
which means that there are more and more games that are going to be impacted. More and more players will receive three, four, five match bans, which will end their end their tournament. I really hope we get the balance right in terms of how the referees officiate the matches and in, in encouraging the games to be played how we want them to be played. And I just desperately hope that we can be talking about the World Cup being won via some incredible fixtures and not going well. They won it because the other team were missing three players. One, one of these massive games is going to be decided because Absolutely. It, it's just inevitable. It, it is go, inevitable, yeah. Almost certainly involving South Africa. Well, <laughs> you, you, Stand by your ex yeah. on Twitter, if that's the case. Razzy. Yeah, Yako Johan might have something <laughs> to say. My hopes and dreams, I think... For all we've said about England, I think a lot of it comes from a place of frustration. Of we watch them more than we watch anyone else, and actually, we do want them to do well. Like it's better to write about when England are better at rugby, and I, so I think one of my hopes is that England play better rugby and play to their potential because it's just a more enjoyable experience for everyone covering it, going to the games, whatever. Who've spent thousands of pounds to go doesn't matter about us, but like that would just make it a more Com- pleasant experience. Co- co- That's one of mine. Because to get to Slotty's point, if this you know, we've had a summer where we've had a sport that has enraptured us and has hit the mainstream, whether it's the, the women reaching the World Cup final, whether it was the Ashes, the Tour de France, captured people who don't normally follow cycling. If rugby is to do that, there's so much to get excited about about this tournament. But, and as much as we can encourage all rugby fans to get involved in the, the tournament, and we can talk about Uruguay v Namibia, and we can talk about Fiji v Wales, and we can talk about France v New Zealand on the opening night, it needs... England to do something that can that can excite everyone out out the window of this sports bar we're in if the tournament is going to hit the mainstream and excite people in the way that we've had through the sporting summer up to now where relatively small scale sports have really have really hit the mainstream rugby needs it as Slotty says but it needs England to perform really if that's going to happen can I have two more hopes I don't really no one like we're journalists we don't really care who wins the World Cup but I would love France to win the World Cup it'd be awesome like being in France covering the World Cup when France win the World Cup a Northern Hemisphere winner Champs-Élysées how cool would that yeah. be that would just be brilliant would well, you remember how it was when, when they completed the Grand Slam games yeah. a year and a yeah. half ago I mean yeah. that was that was flipping epic wasn't it yeah, yeah. so we'd like I mean we also would this is not hope but the sort of can we never have 9pm kickoffs again just for our own sanity it's great <laughs> for telly but for us it's awful but my last hope is what I should mention a few times is I really want Fiji to make the semis because mm. that would just be great. Like Steve's talked about it on loads of pods and in the paper for about 40 years. But the fact that the, the basically the top eight teams have been the same top eight since Sean Fitzpatrick was playing in 1987 and all that is rubbish. Let's have Fiji get into the semis. That'd be brilliant. And to hear how New Zealand won the World Cup in 1987. Yeah, plug o'clock. Here we go. Uh, Will has released a special <laughs> How to Win the World Cup series, which we'll be releasing throughout the World Cup. The first episode is already out with Sean Fitzpatrick. We'll have another one being released this coming Thursday. And we've spoken to a member of the winning team from every World Cup winning team. So there's some really interesting chats in there. That'll be on the usual Ruck feed. Let's finish it off, guys. I've put predictions down on the sheet in front of us. But do you know what? Frankly, Slotty, I think what you said for Paul C was absolutely spot on in that we could probably give you a name, but is anyone here actually confident of predicting who the winner will be? I think it's a great World Cup for that reason. But frankly, I could give you probably four different names. All of them could win it, but I'm not sure who's going to. No, let's do it. Why not? And we'll play them at the end and all look, look stupid. OK, got, you can start, Will. France. South Africa. So, <laughs> <laughs> so definitive. No, the only reason I'm, I, is because we were asked this on the pod a couple of weeks ago when I said I'd put some money on South Africa to win it because the odds were really good. 
before the rugby championship, but I thought New Zealand would win it, which is a hard prediction to stick by given what just happened at Twickenham. So I actually do think South Africa right now I've seen best place to win it. I remember, Talk about odds. I got England at eight to one in February, and I was so excited. And you can now get them at like thirteen. <laughs> <laughs> I remember. I remember on the. I wasn't at the Times four years ago, but you guys, when you did your predictions, I think all they, of they were you, great days, weren't they, Alex? Yeah, uh, we remember. Although my dad always keeps the predictions from the, oh, the no. start of every Six Nations or World Cup, and then phones me up at the end. He goes and like works out who was the most accurate. Oh my god! So, yeah, thank, but thanks, last Alex. last time four years ago, you all said South Africa. Didn't and we? you were all right. And and the other thing was, really? you know the um, Chasing the Sun documentary that the box put yeah. out afterwards? They nicked clips of the ruck and put them on as an example of no the fawning English yeah. going, oh, yeah. we're definitely going to win the World Cup. Yeah. When you'd all predict it's like we clip, win it. a clip of Jonesy saying, oh, they, they, they're rubbish, they've got no chance. <laughs> that, was, that was in the week of the final, the two-horse race. <laughs> so, Times listeners, these guys know what they're talking about. So, if Slotty says South Africa going to win the World Cup, then he has got form and they so will. Hang on, who do, what, who do we want to be clipped up by after this World Cup? Who's uh, video? Netflix? Yeah. As long as they're paying. We can speak to them about that. So we've got one, <laughs> one France, two South Africans. I think I've already been on TalkSport twice and one time said South Africa and one time said the All Blacks. So I'm jumping yeah. all over You're learning place. well. You just keep changing every yeah, time. Yeah, exactly. I think maybe in the interest of being different on this podcast, I'll go for the All Blacks. But as we've said already, I mean, quite frankly, who knows? And it's going to be brilliant. That has been your ruck preview of the World Cup. We will see you in France the next time that you will be hearing from us. Make sure you catch Will's series of how to win the World Cup. Make sure you get Slotty's book, The Boys of Winter, recounting 2003 and England's glorious triumph. How long ago that seems now. And also thanks once again to Clubhouse 5 for hosting us for our preview. This has been The Ruck from The Times and The Sunday Times. Make sure you follow or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts from. We'll see you in France. I think we should keep him on, lads. What do you reckon? He's got a future. He's quite like forceful, though, isn't he? He Professional broadcaster. He won't let us wander off on down blind avenues. He just keeps dragging it back to the... He didn't say au revoir at the end, did he? No. Things to work on. There's a lay. As you're listening to me, Daisy, Apple's iPhone disassembly robot, is dismantling an iPhone into lots of recyclable parts. That's how Apple recovers more materials than conventional recycling methods. Thanks, Daisy. There's more to iPhone.